We got a new uh, candidate here. We got uh, there's a race for the leadership, the uh, BC uh, Liberals. The leadership race is getting a sixth candidate. Renee Merrifield officially announcing her candidacy. She's a Kelowna Mission MLA and the BC Liberal Health Critic. She joins Ellis Ross, Val Litwin, Gavin Dew, Michael Lee, and Kevin Falcon in the race for party leader. And she joins me now. Hi, Renee Merrifield. Good morning. So can you make this official? Tell us these rumors were true. Then I guess. <laughs> they were. Yeah, they definitely were. I've spent the last few months uh, go, really talking to people around the province and trying to listen to uh, what they want and, and what they see for the next leader of, of the BC Liberals, but also this province. Why did you wait so long? Because you wanted to do that? First and foremost, I wanted to have uh, some great time in session and uh, at the Legislative mm-hmm. Assembly. That was really important to me. I wanted to be the best health critic that uh, that we've seen in a, in a long time, and, and so I did so. And, uh, you know, put blinders on and my face forward and made sure that uh, I did my job, you know, really well. But uh, also, I was, I was listening. I was making sure that I understood and knew who we were as a party and where we needed to go in the future. I'm going to get to that, but you are the rookie. You are new there, and I've been there as a new politician and just learning the ropes as, you know, uh, as an MLA, just the basics. You've only been elected since October. That's a lot to take in. But then to throw in running for leadership, you know, how do you think you, you could possibly be ready for that? Well, uh, you know, I am someone who jumps in with two feet, uh, and uh, you know, I was uh, I was commenting this morning to someone. Uh, you know, my my life could be summarized almost by talking about uh, my dogs. You know, I wasn't a dog person um, before I decided to get a dog. I didn't just get one dog; I got two, and I didn't just get you know two small dogs. I got two Bernese Mountain dogs. So, uh, definitely someone who jumps in with both feet and uh, and 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 does things with a lot of passion and a lot of drive and determination. I was thrilled to get the health critic role because for me, it really gave me an excellent opportunity to, uh, to learn and to learn fast and, uh, and to, to jump in with both feet. I think that uh, I, uh, I'm someone who, who likes the challenge and, uh, and will perform well. You, your background is in business. Is that right? Tell me a bit about your background. Yes, I've been in business for 25 years. So I've led in uh, 11 different industries, uh, over 30 different companies. And uh, my claim to fame is not necessarily in all of the companies and their success, but in building teams and uh, and really investing in people and investing in succession. You know, I'm a strategic thinker. I'm someone who, who looks forward and can cast a vision and uh, and then really build consensus around that vision as to how we're going to accomplish it together. And I'm, I'm thrilled. Thrilled uh, at that success, but have been involved in politics at a grassroots level that entire time. So this is a little bit of a different foray, but definitely feel that that's what we need. We need a new generation of political leadership that's got some fresh ideas and a different approach. People often go into politics uh, and they have business backgrounds and they often will say, oh, well, my business background is really going to help me. And I was in politics, but also have a business background. And I found <laughs> that there are a lot of things that are not like business in politics, especially, you know, being patient to accept slow moving decision making and and 
bureaucracy and, and, and for a lot of business owners, it comes as a surprise. And even political parties can be challenging and bureaucratic and full of uh, drama and you can't be autocratic. You have to you be, as you say, a team member. You kind of touch on this, but it's, it's, it, are you seeing any similarities so far <laughs> between mm. politics and business? Because I never really found that much. I think for me, what I would um, what I would liken it to is, you know, with each different industry that I went into, there was a learning curve, you know, to understand, uh, you know, how the industry worked and what uh, what was needed and really where the gaps were and how to mm-hmm. how to move it forward. You know, I'm someone with a passion for, you know, for that positive discontent. How can we do this better? How can we move this forward? And <laughs> yeah. And and I think that I, I approach this with the same way. I agree. I think politics moves slowly. I think it moves too slowly. And I think that there are some uh, some some ways that we can change things to move them a little bit more quickly. I think a great example of this has been COVID and really watching mm-hmm. how we have had to respond by as government, but then also as a society in really, really quick ways, I think inspires me to know that it is possible. Um, it's not going to always be fast, but definitely is, uh, is something that we can do better. How, have, uh, how has the leadership of, of the BC Liberals um, worked well in the past? I think that we've always been a party who's gotten stuff done. Um, has it been perfect? No, but we've definitely been activated and a party that uh, is willing to step up to the plate and, and to move things forward. I think that, uh, you know, we've learned so much over the course of the last, you know, couple of decades. We've moved forward as a society. We've moved forward as a community. And I think that our understanding of how we need to move forward uh, in the future has, has increased and has expanded. And I think that there's an, an excitement and an, and an opportunity and an optimism in how we can do things better. So where is that optimism and excitement? In the BC Liberals? I don't, I don't know I know where that is. It certainly wasn't in the report that came out about the last campaign. Oh, no, the last campaign, that was, that was disappointing for sure. No, I think it lies in the opportunity. I think it lies in, in people's desires to see, to see our society change and to see it change for the better. And I don't think we've seen that uh, in, in, in the last few years, and I think we need to. I think we need a leader who can see forward and who can listen to what people want and their hopes and dreams and desires and then really build a vision around that and, and make sure that that vision is realized. I think that people want more opportunity. I think that they want more affordability, and they have not seen that over the course of the last four years. And uh, I think that we need a leader who can take us forward into that. Is that how you'll grow the base? Because that's key to success. And you look at all the, le- all the people running for leadership are looking at how they can sign up members, grow that base. You've got a, a shrinking base. How do, you, how do you grow that base to get the support uh, and, and to win in the next election? Well, I think that's where we start, right? In order to start building better belonging, which is my uh, slogan, I think that we need to start with building the party and really restoring and opening tent, the tent up mm-hmm. and, and making sure that people can see themselves in a leader. People can see themselves in, in, in the authenticity that's there and in the vision that's there. You know, my goal is to build a team and, and not just a team, but a movement forward uh, so that really together we can, we can see 
seize this opportunity and the optimism that I spoke of mm-hmm. and really earn the support and trust of our fellow British Columbians in the next election. What are, what are the things that uh, will define your leadership bid? What's going to set you apart from, you know, you've got Ellis Ross, you've got, uh, you know, you've got the candidates who are defined in their own ways. How are you going to define yourself to make yourself stand out? Oh, well, I definitely am someone who uh, is going to be uh, shooting from the hip and very authentic. That's mm-hmm. just who I am. It's what I am. It's it's what I know, and I, I don't intend to change that at all. I am a passionate person, someone that believes wholeheartedly in uh, in where we're going, and and that I would say is also the the last aspect. I, you know, I'm a visionary. I'm someone who uh, wants to see forward, who wants to cast uh, you know a goal, and and um, and then bring people around that. And are there specific things, like is it going to be housing? Does it matter when you're running for leader? Uh, you know, when we know the hot issues of the province today or, you know, affordability and those things, but how do you, in a leadership race, do those things matter as much or is it more about more esoteric kind of, yeah, I'm a, I'm a really positive leader and that's how I'm going to win uh, and the issues become less important in leadership because you're not asking for the whole province to support, you're just trying to get you know, a certain number of people to support you so you can get past the, you know, the, the ballot system that the party, you know, party politics has. How, how do you, you know, what's the difference, I guess, is the question about being a, running for a leadership and running for office? Well, as, uh, you know, as BC Liberals, there's a certain uniting factor of all of the different candidates. And our policy is going to be nuanced. You know, we're each going to have a different take on it and a largely a, an understanding. Uh, I have a, a fortunate position in that, you know, I have been involved in a number of different industries. So you're going to see me come out with some policies that are going to be bold, that are going to be mm-hmm. revolutionary and that are mm-hmm. going to really uh, create pause. But I would also say that first and foremost, people are going to choose a person. They're going to choose someone that they can see themselves in. They're going to choose someone that they believe uh, will take them forward and someone that, that they resonate with. And I think that that's, uh, that's my first goal is to meet as many people as I possibly can. Uh, you know, I'm an extrovert that's been, uh, that's been uh, cooped up in, in the middle of COVID, and I'm excited to get around the province and to really meet as many people as I can. Kevin Falcon's winning the race of uh, support of, uh, of sitting MLAs and ex-MLAs. Uh, where do you stand? You got any support from any sitting MLAs that are going to throw their names behind you? I sure do, and I I wouldn't necessarily say that he's winning. He might have been the one that, <laughs> that has announced announced the most. Um, but this is a marathon; it's not a sprint, mm-hmm. and so you're going to see lots of endorsements and lots of of uh, of people. But really, um, that's not that's not what I'm about. Uh, yes, I definitely want the support of my caucus, and uh, and the, the 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 ones of us that are in this race that are sitting MLAs. You're going to see us be a team. You're going to see us be a team through. Throughout this, this race, okay, we'll see. We'll yeah, see. you're gonna. Oh, mark my words, mark <laughs> my words. Um, but you're also gonna see at the team uh, on February sixth, uh, and but but more than that, uh, you're gonna see support from from the grassroots. You're gonna see support that says, you know, Renee, um, I, I I resonate with what she says. I, I believe what she can do. I've seen her stand up. For um, for causes and for the underdog, and um, and you're going to see that come through and in, in in who supports me. All right, Ms. Maryville, thanks for joining me today, and good luck with the uh, marathon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so okay. much. I really appreciate you All having right. me on today. 
Welcome back. I'm George Affleck in for Mike Smith today. And I want to encourage you to always call our buzz line at 604-331-2899, 604-331-2899. Or, you know, if you want to email me, george at cknw.com on any issues or thoughts about the show and stories we're doing throughout the day. So we've heard a lot about protests against COVID restrictions and masks, but in Alberta, the opposite is happening. On Saturday, Albertans gathered to protest the government's announcement that it will be making changes to COVID-19 testing, isolation, and contact tracing requirements. Here's their provincial health officer, Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Starting on August 16th, we will no longer recommend that all those with mild symptoms seek testing. Isolation will no longer be universally legally required if you test positive for COVID-19. Not everybody's happy. Here's a concerned Albertan, Natasha Brubaker, at a protest over the weekend in Calgary. Our children are, by definition, vulnerable. They have no option to protect themselves beyond these health measures and the decisions made by the adults they are counting on to care for them. You are choosing to put people at risk by reducing reasonable protections. Alberta obviously taking their own uh, path on this. And are we really at a stage of the pandemic where people with COVID don't need to isolate? What does this mean for the unvaccinated, including uh, children under 12, as she mentioned? And should uh, BC look, or, you know, or, or should we look to Alberta as an example? Or is it a cautionary tale? To talk about this and all these questions that I have and that you have, because we'll be taking your calls as well, I'm joined by Jason Tetro, a microbiologist with a specialty in studying emerging pathogens like COVID-19. He's also host of the super awesome science show. Hey, Jason. Hello there. Thanks for joining me. Look, you're an Albertan. Seems like things are getting politically heightened there. Uh, that's never good, but it's actually weirdly counterintuitive to what you'd expect because it's like, we want masks. We want it's like the opposite of what you think. Yeah. Um, what we really need to do here is think about time in two chunks. Um, you know how we have like BC and AD? Well, now we have <laughs> BD and AD, and D means Delta. So before Delta, uh-huh. what they are doing here in Alberta would have been perfectly fine because we didn't really need to have more than about 65% of the population, full population, mm-hmm. fully vaccinated to be able to stop the original lineage and even the alpha, beta, and gamma. After Delta, because it now looks and spreads just like the common cold, like rhinovirus or RSV, you need to have a much larger percentage of the population vaccinated in order for you to be able to stop it. So we've gone from about 65% necessary to about 85% necessary. And right now, we have to start looking at not the percentage of people who are vaccinated, but the number of people who are not vaccinated. And here in Alberta, that's 1.5 million. Mm -hmm. So if Delta gets in here, it's, it could potentially lead to a wave. But I'm so, okay, so then these, these, these numbers keep changing, which is always, it's never good to keep from a communications oh, yeah. point of view. And it's confusing people. What's the science? You have Dr. Hinshaw. He's a, she's there. She's there. She's there. Dr. Bonnie Henry in Alberta. And she's like, uh, oh, wide open. Let's do this. Uh, what's mm-hmm. her, what's the leading, what's the science that she's following? It's obviously a different book than Dr. Henry's following. I, well, what it is, is it's the, it's those vaccination numbers. You see, Everything would have been okay at 65%, which is what we were going to probably hit when we get to August 16th. So this is a a strategy or a policy that was designed for previous versions of this virus. But this new variant has changed. And even Dr. Hinshaw has suggested that if Delta does show up, they may have to start looking at restrictions again. The Hmm. big issue right now is that it's a gamble. 
they're hoping that Delta stays out of Alberta. And then what we can do is we can <laughs> essentially call this particular virus, SARS-CoV-2, no different than RSV, which she brought up numerous times in her recent uh, press conference, or rhinovirus or parainfluenza right. virus or any of those. Just a bug. You just got a cold. You're, you're, you just take, yeah, take your, pretty much. Uh, take your aspirin and have a nice sleep. That's basically... <laughs> I mean, the data... So, go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, and, and that's the thing, right, is... We, we've gotten to a point now where people are expected to not fear this particular virus after 18 months of fearing this virus. Mm -hmm. And that if you really want to protect yourself, well, then you go and get yourself vaccinated and then you can be absolutely sure you're not going to end up in a hospital. Right. I personally don't think that's a really good vaccination um, advertising policy. Right. but. <laughs> It is one that they seem to be using more and more. It's certainly kind of the UK approach. You look at in Florida and Texas where we have CKs, that's kind of the approach they've taken. But in mm -hmm. the US, you saw 85,000 new cases that over the last two or yesterday. That's yeah. up 142% over the last two weeks, 341 deaths. So I think the question you also have to ask governments is like, how many people are you willing to let die when you, when you have something like this? And that seems to be Alberta. They seem to be more open to that. Yeah, well, at the moment, we don't really have that many deaths or that many people in hospital or ICUs. And I think they're just kind of banking on the fact that that number is going to stay level. Um, and, and after what we saw with the stampede, uh, we, we had our Calgary stampede here. Um, we had a couple hundred cases, most likely as a result of it, which is actually fairly good. Um, and we've had a few other gatherings. And in the next two weeks, we'll see just how much of those um, gatherings led to spread. If it's you know, minimal, then what Dr. Hinshaw is saying right now is it's going to prove to be okay. Uh, but it's, again, if all of a sudden that Delta does get into the unvaccinated community and start spreading like wildfire, then you are going to see those hospitalizations go up. So really right now, it's not about how many people are you willing to let die. It's how big of a risk are you willing to take? And, you know, in, the, the old uh, analogy of I'm betting my career on this, well, that's basically what's happening right now. But that's, I mean, the data, it's 65% it's of the people in BC who are getting COVID are, are getting the Delta variant. You look in the States, it's, it's like higher than that. Uh, mm -hmm. Delta is taken over, clearly. Yeah. So, but there is there also this mentality in Alberta and some of these places about herd immunity that there's also, hey, you know what, we'll, we'll get immunity through not even vaccinations. More people will just get the sick and then we'll get sick and they won't die, but we're going to have a herd immunity. And we'll, so it's a good combination of vaccines and herd immunity. So that's our approach. Yeah. And the, the other thing, and you've heard this numerous times from uh, Premier Kenny, is that the Delta is not as deadly. Well, no, it is. It's only not as deadly if you've been vaccinated. And I think that's the one thing that really right. needs to be pointed out mm -hmm. is that at the end of the day, and it's not just, you know, Kenny. I mean, if you look down in the States, what Biden administration is doing right now, I mean, they just said that the cloth masks that we've been wearing forever um, apparently are not all that effective because you can smell smoke. Well, of course you can smell smoke. It's smoke. But, <laughs> you know, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get people, they're pushing people to get vaccinated by trying to scare the pants off of them. It's mm -hmm. not going to work. How does the, on the herd immunity, how does the H WHO define herd immunity? Because is vaccinations included as a herd immunity or is that the only way to get herd immunity? <laughs> like, I'm always confused by this argument about herd immunity. Yeah, so, so herd immunity is actually an, um, a, a common term. It's not actually a definable term. Okay. We call it the elimination threshold. And what that means is you've reached enough immunity in your population to be able to prevent the spread of the virus in your community, thereby eliminating it over time. Mm -hmm. Elimination threshold. Ta-da. But anyways, <laughs> um, the thing is that in order for us to get there, 
we have to be a, very much aware of how well this particular virus can spread. And we had a very good idea. It was about, you know, two to three people for every infection for, you know, uh, variants up until gamma. And then once Delta hit, well, now it's probably pro between five and seven, which means that all the numbers, all the epidemiological numbers to identify what um, elimination threshold is going to be are going to get mixed up. And it went and you know, ballparking, you're going from about 65% doubly vaccinated of the population to about 85% of the population doubly vaccinated. Hmm. There are some crazy theories out there related to the, to the variant that, um, that the actual vaccines strengthen variants, that they, they empower the, the variant because it's killing the original virus, but then the variant cre gets created because they're like, ah, I'm going to beat you, variant, mm -hmm. I'm going to beat you, you know, uh, vaccine, haha. -ha. Is that, yeah. that's not correct, is it? No. Uh, it reminds me of that time 10 years ago when Justin Bieber went, you know, when hand sanitizers kill 99.9%. .9 what about that 0.1% that resists? That's not how it works. But anyways, that, that's another time. Bieber fever is over. Um, the thing is, is that what you have to realize is when we talk about selective, we're talking essentially of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. In other words, there is a particular way that the, uh -huh. the, the chemical kills a bacteria. And if the bacterium can come up with a way of being able to prevent that from happening, it becomes resistant. Okay, it's called selective mutation or selective evolution. That does not happen with viruses <laughs> because the virus is being killed by your immune system. It doesn't become all of a sudden, you know, resistant to your immune system. Now, there is a process inside of your body that a virus will go through. It will evolve. Um, and, and you get these things called quasi-species. Listen to my podcast if you want to know more mm -hmm. about that. Um, and the fact is, is that maybe one of those quasi-species might be a bit stronger, but it's not because of the vaccine. It's just simply because it's happening in absolutely everybody and you just don't have enough immunity to be able to stop it from getting out of you. Okay. That's why the vaccine works, because it stops it and all the quasi-species from getting out of you. George Afflickin for uh, Mike Smith and Jason Tetro is staying with me here. Uh, he's a microbiologist and uh, host of uh, the Super Awesome Science Show. And we're taking your questions, 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898. And we have Colleen from Vancouver. Your question for Jason. Well, it's about virus uh, specifically, like, were the are viruses are they the fundamental building block of life before there was anything else and is that why they are so pernicious that they're, they're fighting mm. to survive and now we've got the delta and i saw it on tv and it's like two nuclei and it's got a <laughs> golden helix between it but it has wow. no spikes yeah it's got <laughs> no spikes on it <laughs> so, Colleen, you're you're, oh this, you're getting deep for us thank you that's uh, okay jason go for it what are you, what are you yeah uh, that's well, impressive well, I mean, the evolutionary uh, place of viruses is a debate we're going to be having for probably mm -hmm. a few more centuries. But I love the idea that's been brought up. Um, now, in terms of the actual Delta, the way that it's become like the common cold is very simple. Normally, a virus gets into one cell, makes a whole bunch of itself, gets out, and then it goes and, and infects another cell. But 
common cold viruses like RSV and now the Delta, what they do is they actually merge cells together. So they don't have to go out and seek out new cells. They just wait for more cells to come in and, and actually attach up. And now all of a sudden you've got double, triple, quadruple the amount of resources and nutrients to be able to grow even more viruses. That's the reason. And that little golden area that she's talking about mm-hmm. is called the furin cleavage site. It, it, it's all cool. That's <laughs> <laughs> a very impressive question. Thanks, Colleen. I hope that helped. Gore, from Coquitlam. Go ahead. Your question for Jason. Yeah, I just had a, you know, I was looking back on my iPhone there uh, from that fateful day when they shut down the bars or St. Patrick's Day. I took <laughs> yeah. a screenshot and it was 250,000 <laughs> people. And I look at it now and I just wanted to get your opinion on, do you think that this would ever catch uh, what happened during the uh, Spanish flu? And did you expect this to take off as quickly as it does? I mean, I understand now we have seven or eight times the population. Yeah. It's, it's good. Yeah, good question, Gore. I mean, I think we're all thinking back to back in March, Jason. Where were you? What was your mindset back in the beginning? Actually, I was waiting for a, a hospital perf- um, procedure, and then I got the call literally on on uh, St. Patrick's Day, and it's like, yeah, we're closing down the hospital. Oh wow! It's like, oh. Okay, that's different. Um, But uh, Uh no, I totally agree with you. And believe it or not, before about April, I even was like, "Mm, we're probably going to be able to stamp this out because we stamped out SARS. Right. But then all of a sudden you realize that it it was actually a festival that happened on January 18th. And that ended up actually leading to the massive amounts of spread and it went internationally. And so when we realized that this thing could infect more than maybe two or three people um, at the height then, yeah, it was probably not going to get stopped. Um, and, and thankfully, it was not as deadly as the original SARS, which was a 10% kill rate. Um, right. So it was going to end up spreading all over. So, yeah, I was actually taken by surprise as well. But then as soon as that happened in around April, the pandemic timeline came into play and we were basically going to be living with this at least until August of this year. And now we're And then it became this vaccine race, which was a whole new ballgame, certainly from a science point of view for you. It must have been fascinating to sort of watch that uh, unfold. But uh, yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is I was calling for basically the end of the pandemic around this time, like the the, the civic week, long week. Weekend, mm-hmm. But then we had all the vaccine issues with slowdowns and then all of a sudden mixing and matching and some of the side effects actually causing problems. And it was like, OK, well, we're probably going to have to delay this until at least Labor Day or in, and now maybe even Thanksgiving. I'm hoping not, but we're going to get there. It's just that the vaccine rollout and problems that we ran into, we've never seen before. And unfortunately, um, you know, it, it's just extending it out a bit. All right. Nicole from Burnaby, your question for Jason. Oh, hi. Yes, thank you. Um, there is, um, there's an antiviral Tamiflu that's given for the flu vaccine. Um, well, for, not for the flu vaccine, but for your, the annual flu. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, um, there was a, um, a story on, I think it was Global, way back in September. Um, and it was mentioned to Dr. Joseph Penninger, a UBC researcher who was working on a, an antiviral for SARS. Um, but that was uh, shelved, of course, once SARS was eliminated, sort of. Um, I'm wondering why we haven't looked at an antiviral um, uh, as well as the vaccine. But for, 
perhaps people who can't take the vaccine. Right. Yeah. Good question, and, Nicole. And for, the, and for people who are hesitant, right? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Jason, you're getting, you're getting a lot of tough questions today. Go, go ahead, Jason. What's uh, actually? I know some of the people who are making the antivirals, yeah. uh, and and they're they're doing a really great job. It's just as as the listener said, we got stopped. Our funding was pulled. And and when your funding gets pulled, you can no longer do the work. I mean, we had a, an Ebola vaccine that sat on a shelf for 10 years. We've had SARS antivirals that have sat on shelves for many, many years. This is a call for better funding and better foreshadowing into what the future is going to bring us as opposed to just waiting for every election cycle. All right, Jason, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. It's always fascinating to have you here. It was a pleasure. Take care. George Affleck in for Mike Smith. And yes, that is Christmas music. I know you're wondering, why are they playing Christmas music? This is strange. But most of us aren't even thinking about Christmas at this time of the year. But you know who are? Christmas tree farmers. And they have it in mind all year round. We know the heat dome had devastating effects uh, on BC. But one victim we haven't heard about much about is the Christmas tree. We're joined now by Robert Russell, owner of Satlam Tree Farm. And he's been growing Christmas trees for over 50 years. Hello, Robert. Hello, George. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate that. So tell me, you know, it, this dryness is, is obviously, you know, it's it, it impacting your, what's going on there. So tell me how dry is it and what's going on at the farm? Well, uh, I'll tell you, uh, the heat dome started on uh, June 25th and, and ended on June 30th. And in those days, the temperatures got up to between 38 and 40 degrees centigrade, which is well over 100 Fahrenheit. And that's the highest they've ever been in my total the years I've been here at the tree farm you know I've had it for 45 years and the previous high was 36 so it had a real effect on some of the trees in a random manner the weaker trees are the ones that suffered plus the seedlings of course and uh, the results are uh, uh, the flush and and this heat uh, spell started at a period uh, when the trees are actively growing mm-hmm. and quite tender, and so the heat just virtually roasted some of the seedlings on gra- uh, some of the uh, branches on grand fir, and then with Doug fir, the uh, internal needle internal needles uh, browned up a little bit. So it's going to affect quality in the future. You're on Vancouver Island, is that right? Whereabouts? Yes, I'm uh, about eight kilometers west of Duncan. Okay, how many trees? Okay, how many trees do you have on your on your farm? Uh, approximately forty thousand. Wow. Uh, it's been an ongoing um, property for a number of years, but I've never experienced the uh, the, um, the problems that we're encountering. It's been happening for about four years now. Uh, 2017 and mm-hmm. 2018 were extremely dry summers, and uh, my seedlings were planted in the spring, and they died. And so I went to fall planting in hopes that uh, uh, they'd get settled in over the winter, and they are now dying. So initially, the problem with the seedlings and weaker Christmas trees mm-hmm. is the severe temperature early, and now drought is taking hold. We've had almost 50 days of no rain, and uh, the effect is certainly showing up. So sprinklers, you just can't add more water and, and problem uh, solved? That's impossible. The Why? valley is very water-deprived in the summertime. Oh, <laughs> and, okay. Uh, I have a well for my own personal use, and I'm having to really, really control the water I can uh, use for personal needs. So trees definitely have to rely on Mother Nature. 
How long does it take to grow the standard Christmas tree generally? Uh, a standard tree is about a seven or eight year um, effort, and so uh, we're we're good to go for another two or three years. But with these four years consecutively of uh, dry summers, uh, there's going to be problems down the line. So uh, I can see it now, and yeah. uh, uh, unfortunately, that's the situation. And I'm sure there's other tree farms and say, yeah. uh, areas that are suffering too. So it's a it's tough times. Do you guys talk to each other, you fellow tree farmers? You fellow? Oh uh, yes, we have an association in yeah. the Lower Fraser Valley, and uh, I'm sure they're going to get together and talk about it. Uh, I don't get over too much anymore. I'm in my 80s, so wow. I'm sort of. Uh, standing, you know, I'm sort of taking the back seat a little bit, but uh, can anything be done to turn this around? I mean, can you not get a approval to spend get more water? From, I mean, this is an important part of uh, the. It's uh, impossible. Um, the whole community, the whole area is suffering. You've probably heard about the Cowichan River and and the problems with the, the salmon getting up at. Uh, it's moni- the, the river is monitored by uh, Catalyst, and they're cutting back the, the amount of water that goes down that river. So really, it's 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 a tough situation, and there's nothing we can do about it. What does this do? I mean, it may not be this year, but it still could impact this year on the prices. Christmas trees, they're not cheap, uh, you know, the live ones. Uh, what does this do to prices? Does this create a, a challenge I would for supply? anticipate the prices are going to go up a little bit. Um, I haven't talked to my... Uh, people that I I know, uh, we haven't discussed that yet because we're 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 going through this problem right now together. And uh, uh, but eventually, if there's a limited supply, well, you know, it's the old economic theory: uh, uh, the better the better the trees, the more the price. And so it's unfortunate, but there'll be a lot more number two and number three quality trees in the market, which obviously can't be sold at high price. Right. There will be cheaper trees, but people are going to have to put up with a <laughs> slightly poorer quality tree. Charlie Brown Christmas trees for this winter. Well, present. not quite, but almost. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> You've been doing this for 50 years. That's incredible. So, you know, is, does this kind of frustration make you go, ah, I'm out. This is this is too, getting too hard. Oh, well, it's, uh, I've had a good time and uh, uh, I've enjoyed it. Um, I, uh, I started when I was in university, as a matter of fact, and started on Salt Spring Island, and then I went to uh, Mill Bay. I had managed a big farm down there for 10 years, and I've had this property for uh, since 75, 74, 75, and, and I've developed it. And it's a nice property and uh, whatnot, but uh, it will survive, but uh, there'll be less numbers going to the marketplace for sure uh, in about three years' time, I would think. 45,000 trees, how much, how much acres does that take up? Well, I've got about 25 in Christmas trees. There's a couple okay. of, uh, uh, there's a woodlot and a couple of homes on the property and a couple of small lakes, which uh, don't hold much water and they're drying up slowly. But uh, All right, Robert, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with me about this and we'll be paying attention to this and we'll be looking at, uh, when we go Christmas tree tr- shopping this fall, we'll be looking at that price tag. But I wish you the, the best of luck and, and hope we can get uh, get some rain soon for you. Well, thank you very much, George. I think there might be a little bit coming on Friday, but uh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah, totally. All right, Robert. Thank you. You're welcome.